0: launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Welcome to episode number four of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. And if you're one of those people that is focused on benchmarks, looking for the latest KPIs, and wanting to know all the key metrics to measure in a group practice, this episode is built for you. I'm going to unpack 10 essential KPIs, metrics and benchmarks so that you can unlock the growth potential in your business. I'm gonna go through it thoroughly in rapid fashion and with granular detail, just the way you would expect out of the Polaris Healthcare Partners through Practice Accelerator podcast. This is gonna be a fun episode. I've been looking forward to doing this and today will uh, we'll surely fulfill a lot of needs out there. So get your notepad ready, Make sure your pen's got plenty of ink. Brew another cup of that awful cured coffee. We're getting ready to roll. Here we go. So as you can well imagine, we get a phenomenal amount of questions from the audience uh, and from one-on-one clients wanting to know benchmarks, KPIs, the key metrics to measure, we're a very analytically driven type of a company, and, and we usually corroborate our advice with some type of data analysis. That's what y'all have come to know and love out of us. And so it would only stand a reason that we would have a handful of KPIs and, and metrics that we measure most often with clients, uh, and ones that we feel strongly in uh, that give us some insight into the overall health of a business. Many of you have asked about these in in a lot of different ways and at, at different points in times, and I figured I would try to compartmentalize them and also lay them out in like a top 10 list, if you will, with some degree of explanation and give you a little bit of guidance into different areas of your business. The first thing I will tell you about metrics and KPIs is that all too often, um we overanalyze things when i say we i mean the collective we not just we at polaris but you know uh, our audience uh we see a lot of uh, people come to us uh, and start working with us on a consulting type of a relationship and they show us their kpi tracker and this thing is like a 17 page spreadsheet that's all interrelated and updates automatically and uh, you know the ceo is paying somebody 20 hours of their time to compile this damn thing and, and you can get something called paralysis by analysis. In other words, you can measure too much stuff. The other thing is you, you yourself as the leader of the business probably don't need to measure everything. You need to focus on a handful of the right metrics And there may be metrics below those that you want your subordinates, department leaders, different business unit heads to focus on, but you don't need to be connected to every number in the business at all times. You need to make sure that you're focused on the correct metrics that really move the needle and the metrics that are arguably more predictive in nature. A lot of times when we look at financial metrics, some degree operational metrics, they're, they're um, historical. You know, They measure performance that's already happened. Um, profit and loss statements um, are, are a primary example of that. What I would encourage you to do is to start shifting your thinking into more of a predictive metric standpoint. That is, what are the metrics in your business that help you confidently forecast where the business is going to end up? in the coming weeks or months or quarter, okay? It's important to be able to um, have an understanding of where the business is going and be able to course correct if you see a problem starting to arise. If you're only looking at historical metrics and you find a problem, well, time's already passed to correct it. It's a wasted opportunity. On the other hand, if you feel confident in the metrics that you measure and you're, you're proactive and forward looking, you can head off a problem before it becomes a real problem because you've still got time to fix it. Okay. So those are a couple of like big picture pieces about metrics um, that that I would encourage everyone in the audience to, to take into account. One is you don't need to measure everything in the business, pick the right metrics. The second thing is of those right metrics, make sure more of them are forward-looking than historical. All right. Now let's dig into what we consider 10 essential uh, KPIs to measure for any growing group practice. By the way, if you would like a copy of this, you can download it off of our website. If you go to www.polarishealthcarepartners.com in the upper right hand corner, you'll see a hot button link that says something like 10 essential KPIs to measure. Click on that uh, and you can download the, uh, the PDF. of of what I'm gonna go through with you today. And then you can uh, go back and listen to this podcast or pause it right now even, and take notes alongside anything I'm about to say, okay? So you don't need to write down everything I'm about to say. We put it in a downloadable format for you and it's available off of our website. So first things first, number one metric focuses on revenue. And that metric is $125, $125 per chair, per hour is a metric that we use to measure something called utilization rate of a business. Utilization rate is how um, thoroughly are you taking advantage of the capacity of the business to create maximum revenue. And this is also a private equity-based metric. A lot of private equity groups, when they're evaluating group dental practices for potential acquisition, uh, they want to see the opportunities in the business. Is this a business that's performing at 10 tenths and there's really nowhere to take it? Or is it a business that's, maybe sli- that's performing well but still has some upside to it, you know? And they measure the utilization rate on a per chair per hour basis. And the metric is somewhere between about $125 to $175 per chair per hour. So if you use $125 per chair per hour, I want you to think through and actually calculate the number of days that the business is open and the number of hours per day and the number of chairs you're using, and then multiply all of those three together to come up with the available uh, capacity of the business that is the number of available chair hours in a year. And then if you take your annual revenue and divide it into that number or divide by that number, you will get some amount of dollars per chair per hour. If you're at or around or near $125 per chair per hour, you'll know that your business is performing pretty well and taking pretty uh, pretty good advantage of the available capacity. And if you're below that, you'll know that you got some work to do. On the other hand, if you're a general dentistry practice and you're way north of that then you're probably doing a much, uh, you're, you're performing a, a more what I would call exotic mix of procedures that are typically higher value, higher dollar value per chair per hour. So this is one of the primary metrics that we use to evaluate a business. And we, when we dig into it with a business owner, we really want to get behind the number. So another way to think about this is it used to be that if you had a general dentistry practice and you were generating a, a million dollars in revenue, that was, a, that was a huge number, right? I mean, the ADA average is somewhere around $750,000 uh, for a general dentistry practice, um, I think in 2019 numbers at least. Uh, and if yours generated a million dollars, uh, then that was a, a sizable amount above the ADA average. So you're doing pretty good. But if you ask me the question, Perrin, you know what? uh, What amount of revenue does does your general dentistry practice generate? And I tell you a million dollars. You might say, Wow, that's a that's a really good business. And then you say, Well, how many you know hours a day is it open? I say, Well, we're we're open seven a.m. to seven p.m. Okay. Uh, And and how many chairs does it have? Well, we've got eight chairs. how many days a week is it open? Well, we're open seven days a week from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and we've got eight chairs. Now, all of a sudden, that million dollars in revenue doesn't look quite so rosy, right? Because I'm, I'm, I am I'm may be generating a lot of revenue, but am I taking true advantage of my available chairs and hours to maximize capacity? And I think you would, in that example, conclude that I'm not. Okay, so don't just fall back on the amount of revenue that the business generates, understand it from a least common denominator type of an approach, and that's per chair per hour. Second number is on the margin side, which is 20%. So again, if you're running a general dentistry group practice, we measure um, the the value and valuation and ultimately the efficiency of the business in terms of EBITDA and specifically EBITDA margin. Uh, we talked about EBITDA on the podcast before, so I'm not gonna dig into what EBITDA is. There'll be more about that coming, but from a consolidated margin, meaning all of the, the practices blended together along with the management company, you want to be generating north of, or a minimum of 20% on an EBITDA margin on a consolidated basis. If you're running a specialty group, you can probably add about five points to that number. So mid-20s would be your target on a specialty group. Um, This might not be the EBITDA margin for every single practice, but when you look at the business overall on a consolidated basis, you wanna be north of 20% for a general dentistry group. Ideally, you'd like to be in the mid to high 20s for a general dentistry group, and the high 20s to low 30s for a specialty type of a group. But this is a good number to aim at and, and, um, uh, and at least start with, okay? Um, next number is on the growth side, meaning revenue growth, uh, and that is 8%. So what do we mean by that? And what are we focused on specifically? It's a minimum organic growth number. All right, whoa, Perrin, what what do you mean by that? Let me unpack it just a little bit. So when we build a group practice, and usually they're built through acquisitions, but occasionally de novo and sometimes a blend of both, you hear people saying, well, I I grew revenue last year, 18% or 20% or 12%, usually strong double digits. And what they're saying is that's the entire growth rate, or, or that's the growth rate of the entire business including acquisitions, okay? So it's important to measure that. You want to know how, how fast the business is growing revenue overall, but you don't want to lose sight of what we call or refer to as same store sales. So for an existing location, irrespective of all others, how much did that individual location grow On a year over year basis. And many people are forecasting the dental uh, industry to grow at about 5% per year over the coming five years. Now, that's the entire industry. It's reasonable to conclude that your enterprise level DSOs um, and your larger groups are going to be growing at a much faster rate than that. And it's also reasonable to conclude that your single location private practice probably going to be growing at a slower rate than that. So if your single location private practice is somewhere in the three to 4% range, maybe two to 3% range on a, a growth metric year over year, I would want my individual locations growing at at least twice that industry average for a solo practice. And that number is around 8%. Again, organic growth, is new patient uh, revenues expansion of procedures on a location by location basis not at an enterprise level okay so your growth number being a roughly eight percent uh year over year on a on a per location basis wages this is another question we get uh, or a question we get frequently is, you know, um, how do I how do I handle wage growth? And and I'm, am I in the, the target zone of where I should be? And for a general dentistry group, at least the maximum amount you want to be spending on wages that are non doc that don't that do not include Dr. Uh, wages. So this is going to be like administrative staff, your dental assistants, and your hygienists. That bucket of wages is the maximum amounts about 25%. Roughly speaking, it breaks down into about six to eight percent on office staff, probably six to eight percent on assistants, probably seven to nine percent on hygienists. So you're low 20s to mid 20 at a max, okay? Anything more than that, you need to either generate revenue or increase productivity overall, or potentially you might be top-heavy in terms of headcount. But 25% of your revenue uh, is the maximum amount you should be spending on payroll uh, for all uh, combined non-doctor wages. Which brings me to the hygiene department. The hygiene department is an area where we see. Uh, Frankly, most businesses are, are marginally performing or outright underperforming. Uh, sometimes this is uh, due to the fact they've had long tenured hygienists that can be set in their ways and usually carry um, a high uh, high hourly wage or, or salary even. But the metric to measure hygiene performance is really three times the wages and benefits of the hygienist. Three times their wages and benefits is what they should be producing on a monthly or an annual basis. This is kind of the golden standard in terms of a metric for for measuring hygiene productivity overall. Um, And it's a a number that a lot of hygiene consultants uh, tend to focus on when they evaluate the overall productivity within a hygiene department. Uh, And there'll be more information about that forthcoming. Um, in, the, in the months uh, ahead, for sure. Acquisitions. Uh, again, acquisitions are, are probably going to be listed or, or businesses for sale are probably going to be listed as a percentage of collections. That's fine as long as you understand how that translates into a multiple of EBITDA on a case-by-case basis. Again, if you're going to build a group that group is gonna be valued as a multiple of EBITDA. If your business is going to be valued as a multiple of EBITDA, you need to understand how you're placing valuation on uh, a potential um, target to acquire. And if you're using percentage of collections, but your business is valued as a multiple of EBITDA, those are not the same things and you can get upside down in a hurry. For a solo acquisition, the industry standard is probably somewhere between three to five times EBITDA for a solo practice acquisition. That should be the range that it should fall in. Hopefully, you're not paying any more than that. If you do pay toward the top end of that, you obviously want to know the areas for potential revenue generation and cost containment to dollar cost average down after you've made that acquisition. De novos. We talked a little bit about de novos um, on, the, uh, uh, on the podcast before, less um, popular in terms of a growth strategy, but we really like de novo model uh, in terms of uh, growth potential. Um, it just really has a lot of merits to it. And if you understand how to work your numbers off of it, it can be a great way um, uh, to execute growth, especially if you're not like under the gun to deliver growth um, in a short time frame. So the number here uh, is that you want to achieve what we refer to as a net equity break-even point. Um, And a net equity break-even point uh, is different from operational break-even. Net equity basically means, what's the revenue number that I need to hit at the end of the first year if I wanted to sell the business, pay a broker, pay some taxes, and pay off the remaining balance on the loan and not make a dime on on the sale of the business. What is the number I need to hit in terms of revenue to make that all happen, which ensures the lending window from my bank is gonna stay open for me to continue this growth strategy. And really for de novos, the, the number for revenue that you need to hit is about two times your initial investment to get the business off the ground. So two times for a de novo, the initial investment roughly yields the revenue number you should hit in the first year for a net equity break-even number. Leverage. Uh, Leverage is a a fancy word for um, the amount of debt that the business is carrying and the way banks evaluate you as a borrower in terms of whether or not they're going to continue to lend. Uh, And leverage is measured as a a ratio of debt to EBITDA, or sometimes you hear it referred to as funded debt to EBITDA. And that leverage ratio, maximum leverage ratio that most banks will not uh, go north of is three times funded debt to EBITDA. So when people say, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've acquired a couple of locations and then my bank cut me off, um, and they won't fund the next acquisition I want to make. There could be a number of reasons for that. One of them is most likely that you have exceeded the funded debt to EBITDA ratio that the bank has in place. Occasionally, we see that as two and a half times, uh, but really the um, the three times number is one that most banks will not go past, at least at an early emerging stage for you. So if you can calculate your um, EBITDA dollars of the business accurately and you take a three times number, you'll probably understand the maximum amount of leverage that a bank's going to be willing to undertake with you. Um, operations metric zero. well, that's that's probably a pretty um, um, <laughs> flat number there. So what does it mean? or what are we referring to? the number of open uh, number of hours of open chair time in the coming two weeks. Um, and this is excluding any time that you might have dedicated or set aside for new patient time. If you're holding spots available for, you know, a marketing campaign where you're generating a lot of new patient inquiries and you want to have the ability to slot them into the schedule on a relatively quick basis, which I think is really prudent. Outside of that, you really do not want any hours of open chair time in the coming two weeks from your normal operative and hygiene schedule. I mentioned as we started the podcast today about predictive metrics, and this is really a big one. When we hear about businesses that have uh, a high cancellation rate or a lot of gaps in the schedule coming up, that creates a fire drill in terms of, of filling that. It could be because you have poor patient retention, meaning you have patients dropping out the bottom of the business or not coming back in, or it could be um, some scheduling inefficiencies um, or any number of things along those lines. But suffice to say, the idea is to to drive demand and to really keep the the schedule consistent over the coming two weeks. Beyond that, you might have some gaps uh, that occur, um, but suffice to say, for the the next two weeks, um, it should basically have zero um, hours of open share time outside of dedicated new patient time. And the 10th metric that we're gonna share uh, is one that kind of breaks down three ways. It's a marketing metric, essentially. It's got three numbers to it, $150, $300, and $500. $150 is the average, average marketing cost um, per new lead that uh, we see a lot from working with marketing consultants um, all across the United States and specifically Gary Bird and his team at SMC National. They do an unbelievable job in, in this endeavor. But uh, when you're spending a lot of money on marketing and you get the phone to ring or get people to to chat in or email in about learning more about your business or, or potentially scheduling an appointment, um, for every new patient lead you generate, it should probably cost you somewhere around $100 to $150, $150 max, to generate that new patient lead. $300 is the average cost to acquire a new patient. So this goes back to what's your conversion ratio. Every time the, the phone rings with a new lead, is the phone answered for one? Or do, do, they, have, do they hang up or do they leave a voicemail? Obviously, you want the phone to be answered. And then whoever answers the phone to take a new patient inquiry, you want them to have a high conversion rate to convert that patient um, or to convert that prospect into a new patient. And we typically see that the marketing spend overall, um, when you take that annual uh, amount of marketing spend divided by the number of new patients that you generated for the year, it's around $250 to $300 maximum. Uh, per um, uh, new patient, average cost to acquire a new patient, uh, maximum about $300. And finally, what's the average first visit value of a new patient? So when they come in to see you, um, what are they coming in for? Is it an exam? Is it a cleaning? Is it an emergency? Um, Or is it, um, you know, more comprehensive dentistry? Uh, Obviously, those numbers can be all over the board, But the average first visit value of a new patient is around uh, $500, good number to shoot at. Uh, And the first year value is probably double that, assuming that some of them need um, more comprehensive work done. So as you're evaluating your marketing spend and your overall marketing effectiveness, there's a lot that goes into this, obviously. Uh, But those are, are some metrics to fall back on in terms of cost per new lead and then average cost to acquire a new patient and then first visit value of a new patient. Well, that was a lot. And I I hope you found all of it to be educational and informative, obviously. KPIs and metrics can be all over the board, benchmarks and the like. Um, And and as I, I opened up the podcast today by saying, you don't need to measure every metric in the business. You need to find the right business uh, right metrics for your business that move the needle most, and let's make them more of a, a predictive type of a metric that we're focused on in terms of overall business improvement. Um, I obviously hope that you're finding ways to to apply and implement a lot of the guidance that we're giving you in the podcast. If you've got questions about any of this that I covered today, uh, or if you've got questions in general, about any aspect of the business that, um, that you'd like to hear us answer on the podcast, feel free to send me an email directly at Perrin at polaris HealthcarePartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. So before we wrap things up, I wanted to take a minute and answer a question uh, from the audience. And this one comes in from Kathy from Laguna Beach California. And she asks about um, our opinion around rising interest rates and what the impact might be in the dental industry. And I, I thought this was a good question for a number of reasons. But for one, if you think back over the last, what, decade or more, I mean, nobody's bothered to ask this question because it hasn't been a concern at all. And then you hear a little bit about um, the prospects for inflation going forward, the uh, economy overheating, um, the Fed increasing rates, um, and, and the cost of borrowing going up. And we, we, like I say, we haven't had that scenario in quite a while now. And I, I think it's something that people are looking at and kind of scratching their head. And the first thing is um, when interest rates uh, tick up, it has an impact on valuation. Uh, So if you're you're contemplating selling your business, it's reasonable to conclude that um, it may have an impact on either multiples or overall value or deal structure or a combination of all of the above uh, because private equity groups and enterprise level DSOs obviously uh, use debt um, uh, and a lot of leverage to get transactions done to make their equity capital go um, the, the furthest. Uh, and then if yours is a practice that you're considering selling to a bank funded solo buyer, a young associate or something, obviously the cost of those funds is going to have an impact on what that uh, usually younger borrower is able to pay or uh, the amount that they're able to borrow and pay for the service of the debt. So that, that's the first thing on like the transaction or the M&A market standpoint of things. But for our, our clients that are out there and the people who follow our podcast, who are more in the growth and scale side of the business and are still using debt funds to grow. And that's the the lion's share of our audience. We like to say that our, our audience is doctor-founded and debt-funded groups. So almost all of these uh, groups are using bank funds to grow. And it stands to reason that an increase in the cost of those debt funds is going to have an impact on either their growth rate or their growth potential or, or possibly both. All of that being said, debt funds uh, and the cost of debt is still pretty low. Uh, you know, I, I grew up, I was born in 1970, I'm 50 years old. And and I barely remember the Carter administration of double digit, um, uh, inflation and and cost of debt and and gas lines and all that kind of stuff that we haven't really seen um in in the majority of my lifetime so and i don't think we're heading back anywhere close to that obviously for those that are in the growth and scale phase of their business and are concerned about the cost of debt moving forward um, it's good to be mindful of it it's good to understand it but it's also good to understand how quickly you are growing the EBITDA margins of your business overall and the individual locations specifically. Because if you're growing those EBITDA margins and the EBITDA dollars along with it, then then it's completely likely that the growth in the value of the equity that you're creating on balance sheet is far outpacing the cost of the debt funds that you're borrowing to achieve that outcome. So this is where it's really important to understand the value of equity, uh, understanding um, leverage ratios like funded debt to EBITDA, for example, and understanding how your lender operates in terms of keeping that lending window open for you and your team to continue growing. Uh, so the the longer answer to this question is one that we still feel very confident. We, we advocate that our clients uh, continue to use debt funds to grow when and where uh, possible and to the best of their ability. And, and when you think about the actual rates involved with it, uh, you should really be more focused on how quickly you're growing uh, the volume of EBITDA and your EBITDA margins and the equity on balance sheet. Uh, and if you're able to achieve all of that, then an incremental cost of, of debt funds really shouldn't be one of your primary concerns. Great question from Kathy. I appreciate you sending it in, and I, I hope you h- found the uh, the answer to be helpful or useful, or or at least allay some of your fears about continuing to use debt funds for growth going forward. Great question. Finally, on the something new, noteworthy, and cool front, I like to um, I like to share or even promote to a degree. Um, experiences that i have i feel like i don't get to have nearly uh, enough of them none of us do right um but one of the things that that i have really liked and enjoyed over um about the last 10 years um is being in a wine club from a a winery that i met um uh, that i visited with my wife on a trip out there um in like maybe 2012 or 2014 somewhere around that Um, But the winery is called Aonair. It's uh, spelled A-O-N-A-I-R. And it was founded and started by a young guy named Grant Long. He's the proprietor and the winemaker. Grew up in Napa Valley. Um, It's a a Napa Valley winery. um, And they make really unbelievable cabs and cab blends um i'm a big fan of their wines um and and they're a great group of people young young people who are making a great product they are not pretentious about it um they they will laughingly tell you that their wines are built to be consumed and i love that as a phrase honestly um it's right up my alley i'm not a wine collector i'm a wine consumer um and they are really one of my favorite wineries uh and a great group to to visit it's what i would call a boutique winery um and and you get that kind of personal touch and personal experience it is not a factory tour Um, so if you're looking for a place that has 100 wines and you know ships all over the world and everything this ain't your place this is a small curated experience from uh, some people who are making really tremendous product um, and aren't pretentious about it, and they love sharing it, and they're just good people. They have a sister winery called Reverie 2 uh, that is also in Napa Valley. We took a handful of clients um, after a, a seminar back in September of 2019, I guess it was. Took a handful of clients and some industry friends to visit Aonair and, uh, and Reverie and had a, a wonderful day in the California sun and the, the early fall um, sipping great wines and and learning about the the product and the growth of those businesses and the inception of them and everything like that. And every now and again, when you, when you meet somebody you feel like you bond with, who is a, uh, a creator of something and they create a a good or a service that you really appreciate and really like, it's really just kind of cool and fun to experience it with them. It feels very personable. Um, and, uh, um, I'm also, uh, very, um, I'm not shameful about sharing it. So for those in the audience who, um, have, have a love of wine or enjoy wine, and you're looking to, uh, uh maybe add to that experience, if you ever go to Napa, I would highly encourage you to visit both Aonair and, and Reverie. Um, I'll link to the uh, websites in the uh, show notes. And I'll also link to Grant Long's um, email address, as well as the operations manager at Reverie, Austin Robertson, and uh, who I know fairly well as well. I actually rode, rode bikes with him while I was out there on that trip. Great people. Uh, and if you're looking to uh, experience their wine, you have to be in the wine club to get it because they don't uh, ship through distribution and and all of that. So it really is a uh, a custom curated experience and and hopefully for those who are um, seeking something like that check them out they're great guys um and uh feel free to to tell them that i i shared their names and contact information with you uh and if you're ever out in napa valley highly encourage you to uh to put those guys on the list well today's show was a lot of fun and obviously i hope you're getting a lot out of uh not just today's episode but also the um, uh, the other episodes we put out. And and I appreciate all the compliments we're getting on the podcast. Um, I encourage you to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And obviously, if you've got questions, feel free to submit them directly to me at karen at polarishealthcarepartners.com. I'll try to read and answer them when I can, or at least give you a reply on email. And of course, if you want to find out more about who we are and what all we do, check out our website at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber, and we'll see you on the next episode.